sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love your We thank you for your word, God. We're, we're thankful for those who have gathered here on this off night to, to learn of you, to learn of the word of God. Thy word is truth. And we're believing in you, God, that you will be here, that you will enlighten us, that you will open our understanding and our hearts. And as we dig into the word of God, Lord, as we feast upon your word, that your word will create in us. It was your word that created all things. You created the heavens and the earth by your word. And we want you to create in us, Lord, your image within our spirits, within our souls, within our bodies, Lord, that we might come to the knowledge of the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 17, and in Genesis 17, uh, God changed the names of Abraham and Sarah. God told Abraham back in verse 5, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now, in verse 15, which is where we're at and continuing, uh, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her. And give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So in the Hebrew, Sarah means princess. Her name is Sarah, princess. It is the feminine form of Sar, which means prince. And it's fitting for one whose seed would produce kings. So hearing this, Abraham laughed. Because it seemed incredible that a barren 90-year-old woman could give birth to a son. So now, not only was Sarah barren, but she was beyond childbearing age. So God actually made it even more difficult for her. It, there had to be a miracle. If she was going to have a son, it would be a miracle. And Abraham had assumed that his descendants would come through Ishmael. Now, Abram means exiled father, and Abraham means father of multitudes or nations. Put that in your notes for trivia night. Amen. I'm sure we'll be pulling that one out again. And God calls things that are not yet as though they are. It's funny to think about this man, Abraham. The father of multitudes, the father of nations. And if you were to visit him and you didn't know him and he was a hospitable man and he invited you in. And he, you, he said, what is your name? And you say, well, my name is Pepe Lopez. And he goes, okay, great. Great to meet you, Pepe Lopez. And Pepe says, well, what's your name, sir? And he says, I am the father of nations. Pepe says, wow, that's impressive. So how many children do you have? I don't have, I've got Ishmael, I've got one. But before Ishmael was born, well, I had none. Well, how are you the father of nations? You've got one son. And God says, yes, you have one son, but that one doesn't even count. It's not going to come out of that seed. So this name change happened when God made the covenant, covenant of circumcision with Abraham that we went through last time we were together. So with the covenant came a name change. For those of you who came on time or a little bit late, you missed our little uh, pre-thy-word dialogue. I think we had a good time with that where we were talking about the name of God, but we're going to do it again for, 
for you, although we're not going to get as detailed. But this name change happened when God made a covenant with Abraham. God added the same letter to Abram's name as he did to Sarai's name. And that letter is hey. It's the H sound that is in Abraham. It's hey. Now the name of God in the Old Testament is yud hey. Vow, hey, and this is called the Tetragrammaton. Write that down. Tetragrammaton is Greek. It is not a transformer, but there is more to it than meets the eye. Amen. The Tetragrammaton. And uh, the four letters are Yud, Hey, Vow, Hey. These are Hebrew letters, and it is often pronounced as Yahweh. It is pronounced as Jehovah. Uh, it cannot be pronounced by Jehovah. So when those uh, as Jehovah, so when those guys come to your door and knock and say we're Jehovah's Witnesses and that's the only name of God, let them know that there's no J sound in Hebrew. Cannot be Jehovah. Amen. It was it, actually, if you really want to know what I think it sounds like, Elijah is not here tonight. But Elijah in Hebrew is Eliyahu. Eliyahu. It's hard to say, isn't it? Eliyahu. And it means my God is yud Hey vau Hey. So it gives us a little hint to the pronunciation because, of, of course, Elijah knew the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, the yud Hey vau Hey. And so Eliyahu lets us think that Yahu was probably very similar to how it was pronounced but that's just a ricky taylorism you can take that do whatever you want with it but the actual pronunciation was lost to history because the jews would not say the name out loud and the high priest would speak it only once a year in the holy of holies on the day of atonement so instead, whenever they'd see the Tetragrammaton, the yud heh vau heh in the Hebrew Bible, they say Adonai. They still do. They say Adonai or Lord or the Lord. So when you're reading in your Bible in English uh, in the Old Testament and you see the words the Lord, the actual Hebrew is usually yud heh vau heh in the Hebrew, the Lord is Yahweh. We'll call him Yahweh for now because that's what most people call it. And you probably wouldn't be able to say Eliyahu anyway. Amen. So the letter He, which is used two times in the name of God, represents spirit or breath. And unlike the English alphabet, our alphabet is phonetic. Of course, the Hebrew alphabet is also phonetic. But there is another layer to the Hebrew alphabet, and that is not only is it phonetic, but each letter has a meaning. It's an actual meaning. So you can look at a word as actually being a sentence. There's actually, it's a sentence of letters which have a meaning. And I want to give you an example. Let's look at the word for father in Hebrew. The word father is ab. There's a father back there, Ab. And it is the word which begins the name Abraham, Abraham. And Ab is formed from two letters, Aleph, which means strength. And we know that because the original Aleph was the head of an ox with horns, Aleph. And an ox is strength, okay? And uh, the second letter in Ab is Bait, and bait is actually a word that still means house, bait, house, and the uh, original letter resembled a house or a shelter. So ab, or father, comes from a letter which means strength, coupled with a letter that means house. Now the father is the strength of the house. If you go into a house and try to rob it, you have to deal with the strength of the house, Ab, father. Now, that's interesting, right? Because hey means spirit. Now, if we add the letter hey 
to the middle of the word ab, father, we get a word that sounds like ahav, ahav. And ahav means love. So the spirit of the father, ab, hey, inserted into the father, the spirit of the father is ahav, love. That's how we know that the Father is love. That's how we know that God, the Father, is love. And that should be the spirit of every father. But you see, what we're looking at here is the changing of this word from one meaning to the other simply by adding the spirit to it. Ab becomes love because that is the spirit of the father. And here in the story of Abraham, God is putting part of his own name the Tetragrammaton, into Abraham and into Sarah's name. And it is the letter in the name Hey, which means spirit. So when God enters a covenant with us, he places his spirit in us and will give us a new name. Isn't that beautiful? We're all going to have a new name. You won't be Pepe Lopez forever. Revelations 2.17 Jesus said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. You're going to have a new name. And again, he says in Revelation 3.12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. Isn't that what he did to Abraham? He wrote upon him the name of my God, Jehovah. And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He will place his name upon you and will give you a new name. That's exactly what he did to Abram. He placed his name upon him and Abram became Abraham, a new name. God does things the same way over and over again. Amen. Now let's continue in verse 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He's still trying. Lord, let's just forget about the miraculous. Can we just have religion? How many people have ever felt that way? I have. You know, when everything's going right, when everything's good, when I'm okay with everything, I don't have a lot of bad things happening, the church seems to be doing well, everybody's happy, everybody's blessed. Lord, why don't we just go ahead and keep our religion the way it is? Please, Lord. Because I know with revival comes trial and struggle, and I have to have faith. But may we always say, Lord, we want the miraculous. We don't want to settle for the natural. We want the miraculous. Amen. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. Now, Isaac, me in Hebrew, it's Yitzchak, and it means laughter, because Abraham, and later Sarah, laughed. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham, now think about this. Now this is commitment. You know, thank you, Brother Sal, for talking about commitment in the to the UR men. This is commitment, brother. God gave a word. God gave a command. God gave a covenant. God did his part. Now it's time for Abraham to do his part. Think about this. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, who was 13 years old, and all that were born in his house and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. 
And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. We now come to Genesis chapter 18. But that is commitment. Believe me, they didn't have medicine like we have it. They couldn't just put you to sleep and you wake up and everything's taken care of, right? We come to Genesis chapter 18, where we have a, a very strange encounter. If you really look at it and take it on its face value, it's a strange encounter of the three visitors to Abraham. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts after that ye pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. That's an interesting, interesting amount of meal. And when we come to the book of Leviticus, we'll see why. Uh, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man. And he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. Now, a measure was one-third of an ephah. And the word here, there are actually two Hebrew words used for flour. One is gemaho and the other is solet. And solet is the word that is used in Leviticus for the meal offering or the fellowship offering, which just happened to be three measures of meal. And that will later on become the fellowship offering. And what we are actually seeing here is a fellowship. God is fellowshipping with Abraham, and Abraham brings him a fellowship offering. We have Abraham meeting with the Lord, and the Lord appears to be a man. He is with two angels who also appear to be men. Now, if you have an inquisitive mind like mine, you will wonder, how can this be? And frankly, it is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. The Bible says it's a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's a great mystery. And it's also wonderful because as you go through the scripture, God will give you more and more hints about his nature and his character. But it is one of those things that I don't discuss too often because you must grow. You must be enlightened. God must show you more of himself so that we can understand the mystery of the Bible. But let me say that uh, as we spoke about in Genesis earlier in Genesis that God is one person. We know he is one person. God has never called persons anywhere in the Bible. He is called person, the person of God. Twice in the Bible, he is called person. And no man has seen him as he is. We talked about theophanies, which are visible manifestations of God. And uh, frankly, I'm going to be honest with you. A theophany is what I call a made-up-ism, which is we don't know, so we'll give it a real good technical name, and then everybody will assume we know, and then we can carry on with the scripture, which is what we're going to do now. And, uh, but theophanies are visible manifestations of God. And here we have a visible manifestation of the Lord who eats food in the presence of Abraham. And I believe Jesus spoke uh, of this very time in John chapter 8. Verse 56, when he said to the Pharisees, and remember this, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, Jesus was about 30 years old during this conversation. And the Jews said unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? They actually took this to him saying, hey, I know Abraham, Abraham knows me. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, 
Now, if you ever want to get in trouble with the ancient Jews, say this word, these two words together. Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. Why? Blasphemy. He declared himself to be the I am. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So the Jewish leaders were ready to stone Jesus to death because he declared himself not only to be before Abraham, greater than Abraham, but the voice in the burning bush which spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. I'm going to read that. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. Who's the God of their father? What father? Abraham. The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now, in the book of John, Jesus made seven metaphorical statements. Now, he actually made a total of nine I am statements, but there were seven that were metaphors. It was comparing him to something. He made seven metaphorical statements about himself in the book of John, and they began with the words, I am. In John chapter 6, 35, Jesus said, I am. The bread of life. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the door in John 10, 7. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. To a Hebrew with a Hebrew Bible, there's only one good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is Yud, hey, thou, hey. Yud, how, hey, thou, hey, is my shepherd. I am the resurrection and life, John eleven twenty five. I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And I am the true vine, John 15, 1 and 5. Jesus is the Lord, and he is none other than the Lord we see here in the story of Abraham. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you mind if I go off my notes just for a couple seconds? It'll probably make it a little bit longer, but I'm going to go off. Is that all right? I feel like talking a little bit about what we said earlier. But before I do that, let's talk about truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth. It's an interesting word. Jesus declared himself in Revelation, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the alphabet. You know how the Hebrews say that? I am Aleph Mim Tal. I am the first letter of the alphabet, the middle of the letter of the alphabet, and the last letter of the alphabet. I am the beginning, the end, and everything in between. Aleph, mim, tau is a word. Emet, truth. Jesus is the truth. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the aleph, mim, Tau. But I wanted to point this out since we're here. We'll get to it later, of course. But when, since we're here, I'm going to bring this out. We talked about it a little bit earlier. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate had an inscription put above his head. And comparing it, the inscription in the Greek, we can know the actual words that he used. And the inscription was, Jesus, the Nazarene. And king of the Jews. He had it written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And the Jews were very upset about this. And they came to him and asked him to change it. And he refused to change it. Now, 
The scribes are people who write the Bible. And when they write the Bible, they actually have to transcribe the Bible. And, and, and so they get used to all these letters, constantly filling out letters. And each letter not only has a meaning, but it has a numerical value. So on each line, as they would write the Bible, they would add up the value of each line. And it had to match the, match the original or they knew they had made a mistake. And they would destroy the whole thing. They're very careful with their text. And so as they do that, they begin to notice patterns throughout the scripture. We will get to that near the end of Genesis. It's, we're going to have fun with that in getting into the Hebrew text. But having said that, they got very good at noticing patterns in the scripture. There is a pattern to what was written above Jesus' head. In the Hebrew, what would have been written are the words Yeshua, Hanatsari. Hanatsuri, Yeshua Hanatsuri, Vemelech HaYehudim. And the first letter of Yeshua is Yud. And the next, Yud. And the next letter of Hanatsuri is He. Vemelech is an king, Val. HaYehudim, He. Yud, He. Thou, hey, Jehovah, written above the head of Jesus Christ while he was on the cross. Tell me that's an accident. Now let's continue in Genesis chapter 18. And they said unto him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, Ooh, I just felt the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo, praise God. Let's give God a hand clap. Amen. Praise God. You know, I, I look at the Bible as like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. You know when you see a good play? They say that if you see a gun in Act 1, that thing's going off by Act 3. Well, it's the same thing with the Bible. When God introduces something in the Old Testament, you can bet that thing is going off by Act 3 or in Act 3. There's a reason for it. Amen. Because he's a great author. Let's continue in Genesis 18. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? This is an interesting thing. We will get to this when we get to the epistles. Sarah called Abraham Lord. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not. Could you imagine denying to the Lord? I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now this was a call for Abraham and Sarah to believe that God can do the impossible. Jesus said, For with God nothing shall be impossible. Nothing shall, is anything too hard for God? And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide the Lord again, Yahweh? Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now Amos chapter 3 and verse 7 writes. Surely the Lord God will do nothing. But he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. Abraham was a prophet it's very important as we continue to understand that this man was a prophet God spoke to Abraham and Abraham had a lot more knowledge than a lot of people give him credit for about the plan and the will of God and the Lord said because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me and if not I will know and the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. 
But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So two left and one remained and that was the Lord. I don't know why, but people always try to talk about the Trinity in the scripture when obviously two were angels and one was the Lord. And they went toward Sodom and the Lord remained with Abraham. And here we have the intercession of Abraham. For the sake of time, I want to paraphrase this, but Abraham draws close to God and he said, Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he begins to negotiate with God and he says, if there are 50 righteous, will you spare Sodom? And the Lord says, if there's 50 and he speaks to him again, he says, okay, what if there's only five less than 50? Will you, will you destroy Sodom if there are 45 righteous? And the Lord says, if there are 45, I won't destroy it. And then he brings them down to 40. And again, he brings them down to 30. And he brings them down to 20. See, he's interceding before the Lord. Lord, if there's any righteous there, will you spare them? And finally, he says, oh, Lord, don't be angry with me. And I will speak yet this once. Peradventure 10, 10 righteous men are found in Sodom. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. Now, there is little doubt Abraham was concerned about his nephew Lot. And we remember Lot. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then he was in Sodom. Amen. And then he was in the gates of Sodom. Uh, in Genesis 19, we come to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet. And ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, nay, but we will abide in the street all night. Now, it's fair to mention that as Abraham was, Lot was hospitable to these men. In fact, I believe that Lot, no doubt, knew the nature of these men. Sodom was no place to be at night. And he sat in the gate, and when he saw them, he said, please, you know, turn into my house and as soon as it's morning, get out of here. You do not want to be in this area. And uh, so he was not altogether a bad man, just a very weak man. And of course, the Bible calls him righteous. Why was he righteous? For the same reason Noah was righteous and Abraham was righteous. Not because they were righteous. But because they believed God and God counted it to them as righteousness. Can I ask you a question? Why are you righteous? What makes you righteous? Is it because we do good? Is it because we follow a list of rules? And as long as I have this list of rules with these little check boxes next to it, and I go, okay, rule number one, don't do that. Okay, I hit that. Rule number two, do that. Okay, I do that. And I go down that list of rules. Every day I wake up in the morning, and then I go to bed at night, and I may look at that list of rules and say, okay, I did them. I'm righteous. No, you're not. You're not righteous because of that. You are righteous because you believed God. And Jesus Christ not only counted that as righteousness, but he became sin in your place. He was broken that you might be made whole. He became sin so that you might be counted righteous in him. He took your place. The only way you will ever be righteous on this earth is by believing that Jesus Christ took your place. Does that mean that you should live in sin? God forbid. Why? Well, we're about to find out what a man who doesn't live the way he should be living, what happens to him. This was a man who is considered righteous. He's called Righteous Lot. 
But let's look at his life. He's a leader of the community in Sodom. He is a judge for he was sitting in the gateway of the city. We will see all throughout the Bible that the judges usually sat by the city gates in the public places. And Lot has several failings in his character. Lot seemed to desire the fellowship and safety of the city of Sodom and brought his family there. He even became active in a leadership role. So Abraham, on the other hand, let's look at Abraham. Here's a man who is a stranger in a strange land. And he was waiting for a land God had promised him. Which type should we be? Should we be like Lot and marry the world? To live in the world, to act like the world, to spend our time in the world? Or should we be like Abraham and say, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. God has given me a promise of another place. And I don't care really. I mean, I care about this world. And I'll go to God and I'll intercede for the cities and for this world. But I won't join them and I won't be them. And I won't become a part of them. But this man Lot, he became a part of them. He even became a leader among them. But while his conduct will shock you and it will, it gets worse from here. He was still deemed a righteous man. But righteousness is not really so much what he did. It was counted unto him as righteousness. Second Peter spoke of this. Peter spoke of this. Second Peter 2, chapter 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them which... Uh, with an overflow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot. The Bible called him just. And it tells us a little bit about this man, Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation. That means the actions, everything they did, not just their speech. Of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Then why did you stay, Lot? If they vexed your soul, what was your purpose in keeping your family in Sodom? There the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now Lot may have believed God. And God counted his faith as righteousness. But his actions destroyed his family. It destroyed his testimony. And he did not win even one soul in Sodom. May we learn from his example not to be too close to the present world. We are sojourners as Abraham was. Waiting for a land that the Lord has promise that's who we are this world is not for us and lot did however recognize these men as angels they appeared as men he or he did not recognize them as as angels later on he does but they appeared to be men and i find this to be interesting these angels did not have wings they didn't have a halo around their head i'm sure they probably could have appeared in another form if they had chosen to, but they appeared to be men. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 reads, and I actually believe that I've had a conversation with an angel once at least when I, when I thought about it years later. But Hebrews 13, 2 reads, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. They might even come to our church. They might come in and sit with us and watch what we're doing. The Bible says that they're very interested in what we do. They watch. All of heaven is watching us. We are on a stage and heaven is watching. All those who have gone before and the angels of heaven are watching what we do on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? And that's, the Bible says that we're encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses. Amen. So let's continue in verse 3. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. 
But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Note the extent of this depravity. The entire city, all the men, for all the people from every quarter, from every part of the city. There was not even, besides Lot, there wasn't even one righteous man. Much less ten. It wasn't simply the sin itself that led to the destruction of Sodom. It was the condoning of it and the extent of it. We have to be careful about sin. I don't know why, but there is a, a feeling sometimes today that we, are, we overlook sin. We give it a different name. We, we kind of just brush it off. But we can't do that any more than we can brush off, off leprosy in our body. Sin is likened to leprosy throughout the scripture. It is a disease, and that disease grows worse and worse until it brings death. You literally are called the walking dead at the end of leprosy. There is no cure for sin except for the atonement and the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. And here in Sodom... We see the final stages of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a horrific and evil end. It is a glimpse of how things must have been in the time of Noah before the flood. And it is also a glimpse of how the world will be before the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the way it's going to be. Amen. And you know, you're the salt of the earth. The church is the salt of the earth. We Salt prevents decay. And this is sin unchecked. Decayed to a point of putrefaction that cannot be reversed. But we're the salt of the earth. And friend, I'm going to say this, and I, I, I don't like to be negative in any way, and I don't want to be negative, but I want to be truthful. When a society falls into great and terrible sin, and the sin goes unchecked, there's usually a problem with the salt. The salt has lost its saltiness. And Jesus said if the salt has lost its savor, its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? It's good for nothing but to be cast out. We need to be salty. We need to prevent the decay. How? Prayer, fasting, the teaching of the word of God. Bringing people into the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came unto thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. They were not wanting to have a conversation. They wanted to know them biblically. And Lot went out as, a, and may I say it was a homosexual no is what they were talking about here. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and, ye, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Now, it has been argued here that under the law or the code of Hammurabi, this was the custom of the day that when a guest came into your home, you had to protect them at all costs, including giving up your own family members. However, that may be true. But I think, number one, he was lying because these were married women. They were not virgins. But number two, he had been affected by Sodom. No man would give up his fathers to these men or his daughters to these men unless he had been affected by Sodom. Friend, you cannot be, live in the world without being affected by the world. You cannot be worldly and think that it won't affect your spirit. It will. And he was willing to sacrifice his daughters to the vice of these men. What man would offer his daughters? And his daughters were also affected by Sodom, as we'll learn later on. They had no qualms against later. They will find them lying drunk with their father. 
and having children by him. That's what happens when you become part of the world, when you get too close to the world. Yes, Lot was later called righteous. God counted him as righteous. But he lost everything. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Men who are completely given over to sin hate anyone they perceive as being judges or judgmental of their sin. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So these men were blind and they were still trying to find the door. Imagine this, such it's almost hard to imagine, such depravity, they had this need, this desire to hurt these men, to do so wickedly that even blinded, they continued to grope for the door. Can I tell you that sin is a terrible thing? I remember as a young man watching zombie movies, has anybody ever seen these? And... Um, where the walking dead would surround a house trying mindlessly to get to the occupants inside. And, you know, whenever I read these scriptures, I think of them, they're almost like zombies. They're just, they're mad. They're not thinking. They're, they're, they're mindless. Even being blind, they're trying to find the door. And the men said unto Lot, hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has said, has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters and said, Up, get you out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Why shouldn't they mock him? Lot, you're, you're here. You're watching the same parades we're watching. You're watching the same stuff we're watching. And now you're saying, get out. You raised your daughters in this. You brought your wife into this. Why should we listen to you? And they mocked him. And let me tell you, the Bible says there'll be mockers in the last days. There'll be scoffers in the last days. They're going to be mocking. I hope they're not mocking us because we're not being a good example. Lot did not win anybody for the Lord in his city. And I'm going to close with this last scripture. I want to paraphrase this part. The angels tell him to take his wife and his two daughters. Lest they be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And they take them out to the city and their lot says... Listen, I can't go to the mountains. I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I, de and I die. He said, Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Let me escape thither. There's something about Lot that he couldn't trust God. If I'm out there alone, that I'll die. I need a city. I need another, another city. If Sodom can't be my city, give me another city. Something in his character. And he Rung out a concession out of the angels. He went to the small town of Zoar. And Lot continues to trust in the cities and the numbers of men together for his safety rather than the Lord. Verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. And that which grew up on the ground. But his wife looked Back from behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. And Jesus said. In Luke 17, 29. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven. And destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the son of man is revealed. In that day he which shall be up on the housetop and his stuff in the house. Let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field let him not likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. 
Lot's wife, in closing, was what we may call double-minded. She wanted to follow Lot and her daughters to a small amount, but her heart was mostly in Sodom. I want you to memorize this verse. And you've heard me say it over and over again. It is a very important verse to know. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Our rather frequent verse in thy word. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It was the lust of the eyes that defeated Lot's wife in the end. Though the pride of life, having a husband and a prominent role in the city, and the lust of the flesh almost certainly played a part. May we not be double-minded. May we not even pitch our tent towards Sodom. May we be sojourners, strangers in a strange land, waiting for the land that God has promised us in Jesus' name. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Illuminate our understanding to these scriptures, Lord. And let us hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you, O God. Let us be committed and dedicated, O God, to your word, to your plan, and to the calling that you have placed upon us as your church, the salt of the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.